All right, and we are back with part two of our Joe Hisashi classical music. Um, well, part two of our part one of Joe Hisashi's <laughs> classical music. Well, and actually, so, I'm actually more like part five of part two. Yeah, something like our, yeah, something like that. Yeah. And we're going to start this section with his the Border Concerto for three horns and orchestra. Uh, so, Sean, given that you are the uh, current resident horn player and Mary's not here, um, I'm curious as to know your your thoughts about the horn concerto, because it's clearly very different. It's a very driving piece. You know, it's yeah. got this staccato syncopation. It's, you know, filled with... Seems like might be right up your and Mary's alley. I don't know. I think it is. Um, and I wish Mary were here, because... Um, she would obviously have more to say than I do about about said current uh, horn concerto, um, trio concerto mm -hmm. actually, which is interesting. Um, the the first movement is actually very very. <laughs> oh, I don't know how to describe it. So so the the piece is the piece is called the uh, the borders. Uh, mm -hmm. with, the first movement is called crossing lines, um, which which actually really fits into what I'm going to talk about first, which is about how. The phrases overlap between the horns, um, and that's kind of how mm -hmm. the piece really begins. Um, and this is going to sound like a really weird way of describing it, but it's the neoclassic repertoire inside of neo-minimalistic music. Um, which that which, is a which, very interesting way of putting it. Which is which doesn't make any sense, but I I will I will I'll basically break down what it is. So the concerto itself is actually pretty classical, in that yeah. Um, in that uh, the orchestra plays first, and then the um, horns come in. Orchestra plays, horns come in. Orchestra and horns play together, uh, and then the piece ends. So in a way, um, it's very classically oriented. But in that still that that frame of mind where we can say, okay, we're, we're looking at something like this, and, and then we're thinking, okay, what what's really the, the next step of sort of breaking down this piece, which is the rhythm the rhythm really does add to the driving nature of the piece so mm -hmm. so in a way it it goes back to our conversation about uh your, your mom's favorite topic minimalism um <laughs> yes. so, so and I, I feel like again like i've turned you to the dark side because i feel like there's some part of you that does like minimalism now because of me but um because I, I believe we talk about it so much on the show but um, what's really interesting about the you can the credit piece, with yourself with that. I'd say that's a true statement. I I do. I I, I feel pretty gratified with that because I feel like I have turned you into the turn you into the dark side because of that. Um, so what's really interesting about the piece is that it, it is fundamentally oriented. That it's it's basically broken down in that there are certain sections of the piece, but rhythms come back, uh, melodies come back. I. I don't really feel like there are any really discernible melodies in the first movement so much. Maybe a little mm -hmm. more in the second, because the second one, like the second movement of the, the first piece that we talked about before the break, um, where it just is just solo. And I think he actually kind of likes that that idea where he kind of allows the soloists to to to, to be at the at the forefront. Uh, because in a way. I feel like the soloists really kind of get lost in this piece a little bit too, because the, mm -hmm. the horn really isn't one of those instruments that plays like super. If it was a triple trumpet concerto, watch out because uh, <laughs> you won't get any sleep tonight. No, I'm kidding. Um, 
that's it is kind of the way it is. I mean, horn can get buried pretty easily, especially by a pretty big orchestra that I, I listen to. Um, uh, of which, for some reason, they're all standing. Exactly. Yeah. So I feel like I mean, well, it it is, and well, that is that is normal. That is definitely a, a normal thing to do for a horn player. Um, but what what I found interesting was. Um, you notice that when horn players play, they play to a side. Mm-hmm. But it notice that in order for them to um, to get more sound, they have to play towards the audience, facing the conductor, so that their horns go towards the audience. Does that make sense? Right, rather than backwards. Rather than right, rather than backwards, and then thus the sound of the horn will get dissipated. Um, right. Uh, yeah, that's basically what I had about this piece. Um, a lot of octave jumping, <laughs> which probably has Mary's head spinning, even though she's not here. Um, a lot of overlapping rhythms, incredible stamina for the soloists because yes. they just keep going and going. And I don't really, and it felt like for me, this piece had the least direction. Like it didn't really feel like it was really going anywhere. Mm-hmm. But I guess that was his point because, like, again, like when I say crossing lines, things are overlapping across each other. So, again, like I said, it was neoclassical into neo minimalistic because right. of how, like, it, it really doesn't fit, but it's also crossing a line, too. So, like, in a way, like, it's, it's defining, it's like, it's, it's creating its own genre of music, neoclassic, mm-hmm. neoclassical, minimalistic music. Um, too broad a term for those who don't really know super specific about music but but that's basically what it is it's it's just one of those things where we can look at it and say wow this is really cool because it's just it's it's so different than everything we've ever heard before but it's still joe asashi being joe asashi because of the minimalist mystic nature of, of his, his piece right um i'm gonna stop talking because i need to but you continue my friend no, my question, which is going to make you talk again, is that oh. you're, you know, as a clarinet player, uh, for us, you know, tonguing always presents an issue because the the speed to which you can tongue something can often preside, pre, pre, um, provide an issue. Sorry. Um, is there any, are there any specific horn issues as a brass player that you hear in playing this piece? You mentioned stamina, but like... From a technical aspect, is there a, any issue you could hear playing this piece that might cause the player a problem? I think articulation, because the articulation is a pretty big part of, of, of being a brass instrument player, yeah. but also because of the, uh, the amount of mm-hmm. musicians who, who are playing this piece. Um, and I guess I'm very proud of Asashi for trying to put something like this together, because it, it is groundbreaking, and it's new, and it's intuitive. But at the same time, it is kind of detrimental to the player because the player is trying to do something that the audience can't hear because the orchestra is playing over them. But that might be his point. So don't quote me on that, but I think that that's that's what the thing. But the articulation is really important because um, one of the really important licks that that happens in this is which is maybe one of your favorite things because it involves polyrhythms and uh, uh, hemiolas because mm-hmm. what that is is it and as I see I'm conducting 
the it, it follows a line where you can you can really do versus so I think that's what what's interesting about that is that it involves other things that are overlapping and that's the point of the movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm, interesting. Yeah. I mean, it just was an observer. Was a. I was curious about that observation of yours. Um, do we feel confident to move on to the next piece? Yeah, but I want to actually hear what you think about it. I want. I want to know what you think about it. Oh well, yeah. I mean. My yeah. my observations were the were the same as yours about you know it, it's it's such an articulation heavy piece and yeah. obviously when it comes to articulation strings have it a little bit easier than sure. um than than wind instruments because their articulation is dependent on the movement of a bow which yeah. you know obviously provided you play it correctly should be pretty consistent every time. The wind players, obviously, there's so much they're dependent on in order to make that sound. The speed of it is dependent on, you know, how fast your tongue can move, how, you know, much can you sustain your breath. So I find, like, for wind players, this is probably a more challenging piece for them. In terms of, you know, like, uh, the form and melody, it, it is definitely, just like his other classical music, seems to be more on the... It, this is not atonal, necessarily, but it's not tonal either, so it's... Because there's no there's no melodic sound, so you know, for the for the listeners, you know, the atonality being that use utilizes the twelve tones of the of the Western scale in in no particular not I don't say no particular form, but you know it, it's utilizing all the notes, no key signature to focus through, and you know, like we mentioned the last piece, it's an expression of emotion, I think. And so in this case, there's maybe a little more focus towards something. I'll I'll use the word melodic even though it's not melodic, but it's not, I don't think as quite supposed to be as uh, rawly emotional. Yeah. There's definitely emotion in it, but sure, it's not quite sure. as much as say dead. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, and you know what's interesting about that because you 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 did bring up really a really good point, which was that there really isn't a melody mm-hmm. in this piece, so it could be a melodic, but like you said. Uh, minimalism doesn't need a melody to be pres- present. It just really just needs the ostinato to be that, right to keep it on. Um, and we can say the same same thing about the the first piece in that it's it's totally different, right? And but they have similarities where um, they are very continue. They're very um, contiguous on creating the sound and also building upon it as we go along with the piece itself, which is really mm-hmm. beautiful. Um, are you ready to talk about the second movement, my friend? Sure. We've been dying to talk about it. And I am also dying to talk about it because, and man, I'm, I think Mary's head is spinning because I think she should be really happy to talk about this one too. Um, because Joe does something truly groundbreaking in this piece, um, which, which involves mouthpieces, and the, actually the horn. So what's really interesting about the, this movement is that initially when I listened to it, I thought they were singing. But what's really cool about the piece is that the two other horn players that are playing take off their horn and just play straight into the mouthpiece. Mm-hmm. So while the horn is playing, they're being harmonized by the sounds of the mouthpiece, which is super ethereal and super weird. <laughs> it's very but, weird. But it works really well. It's really cool. Um, 
it wouldn't work on a trumpet mouthpiece. I got to tell you that right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe because of the the conical nature of the of the horn mouthpiece. Mm-hmm. I mean, like it is also. I mean, like it is also like the, the trumpet mouthpiece is circular. You know, it's, right. it's a tube. But because maybe the circular, maybe the 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 um, and, and maybe Mary can attest to this, or maybe uh, disagree with me with this on this, but. It, it feels like because of the, the the nature of the shape of the the mouthpiece and uh, the, the 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 shape of the mouthpiece for a horn is very conical, but with a, the sort of a straight circular line at the end, like tubular at the end. Mm-hmm. But I really does do think that adds to that sort of like ethereal, weird nature, and it's actually really spooky, but it's actually really cool. Um, and let me read what I wrote about it because um, it starts. It starts in the low register of, of, the, of the horn, and it sounds so. Anytime you hear the horn playing in a really low octave, and I'm sorry, Mary, but I'm really picking on you today, but um, it really does add to this really like really corny. I can't, I can't, and I think I started laughing during this movement because I, I just can't take the horn seriously when it plays that low register. It doesn't sound very wholesome. It sounds very weird, and I, I do laugh a lot. Um, I'm very I'm a very giggly guy. Hunter knows this, um, but you know, and and you know, I mentioned if it, 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 it feels cute, it's very a very ethereal. The aesthetic nature again, I have to add a dollar in the aesthetic jar. But you know, it adds to that aesthetic of being ethereal, and it's different and it's engaging. Um, your thoughts about the mouthpiece playing and and some of the the horn extra stuff that's happening in this movement? You know, I think he's a big fan. He's such a big of creating like an, an ambiance and atmosphere in his music. You know, and, and I think that one of the ways to do that is you incorporate some sort of unusual sound. Whether it's you know he we know he's used the strings before to make. Uh, either like a tremolo type sound or, you know, these very like sweeping kind of uh, bend up notes. So I think he's used to experimenting with different things. We know he likes the synthesizer. So he he does like to experiment. And Mm -hmm. I think that the concept of using the mouthpiece without the instrument, like you said, it's a different style of mouthpiece from a trumpet. And so therefore, you would, as you would expect, the sound you would get from the mouthpiece would be different than you would if you did it for a trumpet. But I've always found the French horn to be a more delicate instrument than the trumpet. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, if you want to get a more, you know, you, you mentioned the word ethereal. If you want that kind of sound, it has to be with the French horn. Yeah. Or thereby extension, yeah. it's, it's, it's mouthpiece. Yeah. And I think when you take it out of the instrument, you also are losing the um the echoey quality to the the sound that the uh the french horn has and the sound coming out of the mouthpiece would be much harsher right yeah. which this piece is not necessarily a delicate piece so you want that harsher sound right right so i think it's a good choice if that's if that's the kind of experimentation you're going for this was the way to do it and the title of this movement is the scaling um which I think really does add to that that ambiotic feel of like oh we're slowly going up and it's mm-hmm. kind of creepy we don't know what's gonna happen um, so I I think 
I mean, again, like I could be very critical of, of what Joe Asashi is doing, but but in a way, he's he's very ingenious in that he's 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 really thinking outside the box and really trying to create that that environment that that's available to to really showcase the the, the sound of, what, of actually what's what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. And I think what's what what caused me to laugh the most was was actually hearing the timpani and the the, the horn playing the same note <laughs> i was like oh my god it, mm-hmm. I just, I, I, it just doesn't sound natural to me to hear like, like an uh, like a higher brass instrument to play a lower partial for for um for some reason it sounds so stupid but <laughs> that, that, that's just the way that i'm thinking i guess it's, it's so dumb um and we'll get right into the, the third moon because it is attacker mm-hmm. um I didn't really have a lot to say about this movement because it kind of reminded me of the first, just kind of a lot in that um, it also kind of reminded me of uh, like Baroque concertos in that you would take a break, Mm -hmm. but the material would sort of be similar. So I don't really think that it's, it's, it's something that that unique, but it is kind of, interesting in that fashion um what else did i say about it i said that um it does return to this minimalistic music um it is playful uh it returns to six eight um and again like i said at the beginning it very overlapping and, and quite kind of demanding of the instrument itself and then it just ends so to me this movement is kind of like a filler um this isn't my favorite movement, but it, it, it feels like when, when I think about certain themes and topics of, of maybe his music, um, this one does pop up the most because of how things like orient around it. So mm-hmm. because it is it is and it is this this they actually the, the title of this movement is the circle. So I guess in a way it, it just kind of full it just returns to the top of the the, the the arc of where we began so right maybe that's what joey sasha was going for it could have been i mean like you said going full circle that would bring us back to the beginning but in a way i think it also the this movement i think is more like that the last i'm thinking maybe the last minute or so of the piece mm-hmm. you know it's a very horn heavy sound the other the other parts of the orchestra really just are the accents for it but it's all about the horns to really like let loose at the end there right right yeah, no, and I, I like. I, oh, go ahead. No, 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 I was just gonna say I agree with you. That's all I was gonna say. Oh yeah, no, it's just I, I think I, and I like the sound because I do like the sound of the French horns. Um, and it's again they they're repeating this one note that da 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 Um, which I think, again, it's that that minimalist ostinato where they're just repeating this thing over and over again. Well, it's not not so much an ostinato, but they're using the one bass note. Um. As sort of what the other rest of the orchestra is all sort of hovering around, and they're staying here, they're staying here, and they're I'm to try and show this as if anyone can see what I'm doing. But you know, it's it's like when they remain constant, everyone else is moving around, and they provide the 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 root of it. I think it's just, right. I, I think it's just it's a cool ending. But clearly, if you're looking for development in the piece, you know, I I, I couldn't say it's the most developed of the three movements. Right. Right. You can't really say that much, but 
I guess that's exactly what, what Joe was was going for. So mm-hmm. <laughs> trying to be critical of him is hard because yeah. you 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 say like, oh, Joe, maybe you're doing this, but I was like, but then but then you lean onto another point and you're like, yes, okay, well he did that. So all right, so we will talk about now a different piece, as Sean said, a 180 shift by Joe Hisashi from his horn concerto, and it's called A Wish to the Moon. Yes. Lowercase a. Is there an importance to that? I don't know. I really I really wish I don't know. That, that, that to me, sounds weird, but I feel like that's a typo. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Because <laughs> it's in the, it's in the uh, album cover, too. Oh, okay. Interesting. Okay. All right. I don't know. Uh, just, you know, poetry. Who knows? You know, capital, non-capitals. So, Sean, tell us, why is this a 180 shift? <sighs> because we get out of the classical repertoire and we're back to Joe Isashi's bread and butter, which is his jazz music. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way, um, it kind of reminds me of uh, back to his studio Ghibli days. Yeah. Um, definitely in that 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 genre. And I it's just so weird because in my mind, again, it kind of did a 180 where I was like, oh, it's gonna be so soft, it's gonna be so nice. And I hear and I was like, okay, all right. Well, again, like my mind is playing tricks on me because I feel like I know Joe and then I actually I don't know him. Um, which is total weird, but it, this one is it, just so cool. Um, super it's very ragtimey. It is really, it really is uh, jazzy. Um, you were probably very happy to hear that it was very hemiola heavy. Yes, it was. Yes, I quite enjoyed that. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, very rhythmic, um, not minimalistic. Finally, no, um, not at all. And one can make a case for it almost being rock. Where it's kind of like it's very super heavy. Um, you can make a case that um, it has jazz-like tendencies, but is also very like very. When I think of rock, I think of more like heavy articulation. So in mm-hmm. a way, that's kind of what that kind of maybe like an easy listening rock. I mean, don't like push your grandma to listen to it, but <laughs> <laughs> but in a way, like I would say that that kind of reminds me of, of rock. Um, uh, I love this too, Hunter. And I, I think I've said this before on this on this podcast. Producer, associated performer, recording arranger, piano, Joe Hisashi. Yes. All of this. And so. something else all. to note about this is that the the full title of it is um, Etude, A Wish to the Moon. Right. Yeah. So it's technically, according to Joe, an etude. It's a study, yeah. Right. So... Yeah. In that sense, it's supposed to be academic. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be practicing or teaching some sort of technique. What do you think it? What do you think it's trying to teach, or what do you think it's meant to study? I mean, again, Joe could be totally pulling a one eighty and saying this is not. A, this, this is just for me. Like I like doing this kind of stuff. But I, I actually think it, it, it's actually with the, the thumb and the pinky mm-hmm. uh, on, on the right on the on, on the on the right hand. Bum ba bum ba bum ba bum ba bum. It's a study of being t- being to make sure that you can um, use octaves, especially with your your thumb and your pinky, and that's kind of how that I think that's how that works. 
Does, yeah. does that make sense? Because there's, yeah, there's, 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 there's a lot of octave writing. So if, if there is an aspect of the study that is involved, I think it is because of the, the placement. Because it, it is, I mean, it, it does sort of stretch out the calluses in your fingers yeah. to, to get you to, to, to remember how, how that works. But that's definitely an aspect of the study. I think another aspect of the study that, that could be important is, is the swing and the rhythm yeah. uh, too. Um, then obviously, there, there, are, there are plenty of reasons why we can call any form of music an etude, but Joe specifically said this is an etude. Right. Um, but I, I almost feel like he's making fun of etudes and that like this really might not be one, but he calls one this. Yeah, I know what you mean. Right. Almost a joke. Yeah, in that it's a, it's a, it's sort of like a funny joke on expectations. Exactly what what I kind of thought was that I listened to it and I was like, oh, is it going to be so nice? It's going to be so beautiful because I love his lyrical writing. But no, this 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 is more like um, uh, this kind of reminds me of a, a section in uh, um, Kiki, mm -hmm. uh, which is just very loud and really clunky, where they they describe the dog. Yeah, and the uh, um the the <laughs> trying to deal with the cat and stuff like that. It's really funny. Um, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. it, there's a section of it that I'll maybe I'll play for you later that exactly reminds me of, of Kiki. But um, but yeah, no, I again I don't want to again remind things of, of of what's happening, but um, but this is the way that I'm thinking about about Joe, and I I I always get surprised by the what he's doing. And, exactly how to move forward with his music yeah and i think also you know he he's got it's got that leisurely feel to yeah. it yeah which is yeah, often associated so. with with ragtime well right. not ragtime specifically but well no some some ragtime well you, you um, know here's the thing i think that's what's interesting is because you you did mention it was ragtime mm -hmm. uh earlier but because because it, it's because it's a two-step right uh when, when we say a two-step rather than a four-step two-step being that um, we feel the beat on on one three. Rather than going being more right. like it, it, the the beat is less heavy on on all four rather on than all four beat. rather than one three. Then, exactly. Yep. Right. It's it's interesting, and and who knows? Maybe maybe this is the study, right? Maybe he yeah. wants people to listen to it and dissect it and say, like, oh, what, what, what do you think about it? No, I think, I think that's why you and I are here today, because we can then discuss about it's, – it's really importance of um, octave jumping and the rhythm and the aspects of it. But at the end of the day, it is really just music, and I think that's what Joe Asashi was planning all along. I just think it's just kind of funny that he called it an etude because it's an etude. Mm -hmm. Would you like to do my the handles, my friend? Oh, sure. And I'd love to do the Brahms, too. Um, oh, the Brahms? Right, let's okay. see. <laughs> and the Brahms. The handles and the Brahms. Sure. So yeah. for those of you listening, we're going to take a quick break sponsored by our friends at Anchor. But remember that we are on social media as well. And if you'd like to follow us, um, we are... On Twitter, we are at MusicSpeaks underscore pod. On Instagram, we are MusicSpeaks underscore podcast. On Facebook, we are MusicSpeaks podcast. Three separate words. Uh, on TikTok, we are at MusicSpeaks underscore podcast. And 
on the YouTube. We are Music Speaks Podcast. So uh, we'll take our quick anchor-sponsored break, and then we'll be right back with uh, some more Hisashi classical music. So see you then. <laughs> 